earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you out driving? Are you at home? Elsewhere on your mobile device? Catching the podcast? Well, for a number of weeks now, we've taken a scriptural journey together, one that has brought us down a path I've called Faith's Fundamentals, Building a Solid Belief System. And last time we took a fairly detailed look at the subject of salvation and salvation's part in God's unfolding drama of redemption. You may recall that I shared that salvation may be viewed as the end result of redemption, redemption functioning as the means. And in the process of unpacking redemption so we could put some handles on it, we saw that underlying this word and concept was the idea of being ransomed, in other words, being bought back from the slave market for the price of release. For those living in the first century Roman Empire, this was a powerful and vivid word picture, since the population back then was anywhere from 30 to 50 percent slaves. What a way to picture spiritual salvation, right? What a way to portray the gospel message. Jesus became our ransom and freed or released us from the slavery of sin. He rescued us. He delivered us. We were bought with a price, and the price was Christ's blood. Our salvation then was God's ultimate search and rescue operation. Now, before we continue, friends, I'd just like to remind you that the podcasts of A Word from the Word are available at faithtalk1360.com under local program podcasts. And friends, A Word from the Word is now on Apple Podcast and Spotify Podcast. Well, last time we learned that one of the automatic fringe benefits of being redeemed or saved was a brand new interpersonal relationship with God. And this new relationship brings us into God's family as adopted children. We can now rightly refer to God as our very own Father, our Abba. The Aramaic Hebrew word Abba denotes an endearing and close-knit relationship of intimacy. Friends of mine that have been to Israel said they often heard Jewish children call their fathers Abba. So it signifies familial closeness. We also learned that the doorway or entrance into this salvation experience is our dual response of repentance and faith awakened by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and faith have been viewed as two sides of the same coin. And I shared previously that a modern-day equivalent for repentance is a U-turn. That is, we make a conscious decision to turn completely around and go in the opposite direction. We turn from sin 
and turn to God. Another modern-day equivalent is the military phrase, about face. In repentance, we literally make an about face. We change the direction we once were going, and we now go the opposite way. God, compelled by his love for us, graciously holds out his offer of redemption and salvation. And if that weren't enough, his Holy Spirit woos us to him by lovingly convicting us that something is not right. There's a deep chasm between us and God, and God took the initiative to bridge that chasm, reconcile us back to himself That initiative is summed up in the phrase one scholar coined, the unfolding drama of redemption. Well, friends, today in this next installment, I believe the logical next step is to look at faith and answer a few questions like, what is biblical faith? What is it not? So, with a little cleverness, I've titled today's part eight, Faith, Don't Leave Home Without It. And for our scriptural underpinning, let's look together at the opening words of Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 7, and then verses 12 through 17. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And now here's verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy or faithful, the same word as the above verses, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief or without faith. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy or faithful saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And let me just say here, friends, that Paul is not saying he is presently a worst sinner. The context indicates that he's referring to his pre-conversion days. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, though worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, the first thing I'd like us to see, friends, is how many times faith is spoken of in this brief section, and in addition, how many facets of faith are touched on. In verse 2, Timothy is referred to as Paul's son in the faith. In verse 4, God's work is by faith. In verse 5, there's a reference to sincere faith. In verse 12, Paul was thankful that God considered him faithful. In verse 13, Paul said he acted in unbelief or without faith. In verse 14, Paul says that God's abundant grace resulted in him acquiring faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, Paul said he was an example of those who would believe or have faith in Jesus and receive eternal life. Finally, in verse 17, Paul is distressed by some who have shipwrecked their faith and have become blasphemers. Now, friends, in order to lay a proper foundation, let's refer back to verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Earlier, I posed the question, what is biblical faith? And I believe Paul reveals to us here that first and foremost, biblical faith is a sincere faith. Now bear with me, because we must also have a proper understanding of what biblical sincerity is. You see, friends, the problem today is that people seem to think that they can embrace any belief system as long as they're sincere in their belief. That's all that matters, or that's all they need. And sadly, many people equate their eternal destiny with their sincerity, as if sincerity was the password to get to heaven. I don't know if you've heard someone say this, but I have. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. Friends, the most perilous situation that exists in the world today is people who are utterly sincere, yet utterly sincere in believing a lie, a falsehood. Now, the sense behind our word sincere in verse 5 is genuine, true. It also carries the idea of without pretending. In the original New Testament Greek language, the word is anapokritos. I'm guessing you can figure out what English word comes from that word. If you said hypocrite, you guessed it. Paul uses this same word in Romans 12:9. Let love be sincere. In other words, let love be without hypocrisy. Biblical sincerity, then, friends, is rooted in what is genuine and true. Biblical faith, then, is true faith. It is without falsehood or pretense. Our English word sincere is a great translation of the Greek word and is a great synonym for genuine or true. Sincere actually comes from the Latin phrase sin, S-I-N, and sera, C-E-R-A, which literally means without wax. You see, friends, in times past, a potter or sculptor would often put their seal or stamp on a completed vessel or work with the words sincera. This meant that as far as they were concerned, there was no flaw in their work. 
However, if their pottery or sculpture had cracked, they would carefully patch the crack by filling it in with wax. It would then be glazed over and the crack completely hidden. But the maker knew that his piece did not merit the stamp Sincera without wax because it was not flawless. The added wax made it lack genuineness. Evidently, biblical faith also carries with it the claim that there exists an absolute, verifiable truth in which we must place our faith. The church I'm a part of has two interesting statements about faith. We believe that God's gift of his Son is the only and all-sufficient way we can be saved from the guilt, power, and eternal consequences of our sin and restored to a full relationship with him. We believe we receive this salvation only through our repentance and faith in the atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... We believe in the one universal church which is made up of all who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ and who seek to serve, love, and obey him. Notice how crucial that little word in is. Biblical faith cannot be fully understood until we recognize the fuller meaning of this word in concept. Faith in, trusting in, relying on clinging to, adhering to, like glue. In other words, having absolute confidence in, leaning on God as if we were placing our whole weight on him. Well, the true story is told of a missionary who worked among a people group that had no written language. He lived with them to learn their oral language and then began committing their language to written form. During that laborious process, he came to the realization that these people had no word for faith. Even the concept was not there. This stunned him because his work of translating the New Testament into their language came to a standstill. He was baffled and prayed for help in finding a way to communicate the idea of and word to use for faith. Well, this missionary had an open-door policy in his dwelling, and tribal people would often just drop in and chat with him, and he with them. One day a tribal member was out jogging, and after the jog dropped into the missionary's house. Exhausted and sweating, he plopped himself down in a chair and exclaimed, Phew! I'm so glad I can place my whole weight on this chair, and it supports me. Well, there it was, the answer to his prayers. Now he could define faith for these people as placing our whole weight on Jesus, and Jesus holding us up. His translation work then sped on. Hallelujah! Faith in the New Testament is both a verb and a noun, friends, but even the noun form is guided by the verb, so that the noun form is not static. The noun even represents action. Some of our common or most familiar Bible verses would take on new life and new meaning if we only knew how the original language made them sound. Take John 3.16. We read it like this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now let's hear the Greek language as it was meant to be understood. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever is believing or faithing in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you hear the action of faith coming out? Take John 14, 1 and 2. We read it like this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now listen to how the Greek expresses it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You are faithing in God. Now be faithing in me or trusting or believing. Did you hear that active side of faith coming out? That's how the verb form dictates it. That's how we should be reading it, friends. Biblical faith is dynamic, has movement. It's not static at all. Now maybe we can hear some other well-known Bible verses the way they were intended to be heard. Let's take Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone believing or faithing, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And let me say here, friends, in verse 17, that Paul is quoting from the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4. The Hebrew for this verse can be understood to say, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. The Hebrew word here for faith may be translated faithfulness because its range of meaning includes steadfastness, fidelity, and faithfulness. So we must take that into consideration when interpreting Paul's statement in Romans 1.17. Let's look at Romans 5.1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Or how about the ever-popular Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Once again, Paul uses the noun form of faith or belief, which includes the idea of faithfulness, trusting, and fidelity. You see, friends, the Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers. Faith enables the believer to know God's preferred will. And faith and God's preferred will are directly connected in Scripture. We see this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will this idea is actually rooted in the hebrew scriptures our old testament 
Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, another well-known and well-loved passage says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Trust here in Hebrew is a verb, so we should understand it to be saying, Be trusting as an ongoing action. This word's range of meaning also includes relying on, being confident in, being certain, even placing your security in. And friends, we do all this because we really do want God's preferred will in our lives, don't we? Don't we want to know what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is? I know I do, and I hope you do too. And friends, let me just say here that my reading and comments on several of these verses may give the impression that I'm joining faith with works. You know, a works salvation? Nothing could be further from the truth. We are saved by faith without works, but we are saved by a faith that works, someone once said. Amen? So friends, when it comes to biblical faith, it's also extremely important we distinguish between our fancies, our opinions, our beliefs, and our certitudes. Some of our ideas can be labeled fancies. Fancies are ideas we momentarily entertain and realize may or may not be true. Fancies concern matters which are not of any great practical importance. The world will stand with or without them, and life will go on. Then there's opinions, and some of our ideas would rightly be considered opinions. We're a little more certain of our opinions than we are of our fancies. Opinions represent ideas that we think are correct, and so we're willing to argue for them. But no particular struggle will be felt if we must surrender our opinions that prove to be untrue. Then there's beliefs. We have ideas which we call beliefs. We live by beliefs. We even adjust our life according to beliefs. To lose a belief becomes a jarring experience because beliefs are rooted in life. They even guide and direct the course of our life. Lastly, friends, there are certitudes. If we're honest, we'll admit that there are few certitudes in our lives. Certitudes are beliefs that have become so clearly validated and firmly embedded in the structure of our reason and experience that the idea that they might be contradictory seems inconceivable. An example is the statement, God is... It's become a certitude for true Christians. We wouldn't think of leaving home without it. So as Christ followers, we must learn to distinguish each of these from the others. We must be very careful that our fancies and opinions are not clung to like our beliefs and our certitudes. The key here, friends, is that we must be willing to change our fancies and opinions as the need arises, while being willing to live by beliefs and die for certitudes. The Apostle Paul was willing to die for his certitudes, two of which were 1 Timothy 1, 15-17. Here is a trustworthy or faithful saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe or who would be believing or faithing or trusting on him and receive eternal life. 
Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And secondly, to Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Friends, for the followers of Jesus, faith was a present, living and breathing, passionate reality lived out in their daily lives. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I see that we've come to the end of today's program. Next time we'll continue and sum up the topic of faith with the second half of this installment that I've called Faith, the Substance of Things Hoped For, the Evidence of Things Not Seen. You won't want to miss this finale on faith. My hope is that these studies are helping us to better understand some fundamentals that the Bible reveals about faith. Friends, today's broadcast will close out with an email where you may write me and share your feedback. I'd love to hear how this series or any part of it is blessing you. Please also consider joining a Word from the Word support team. Just ask me for the details. Thanks to those of you who help keep this program on the air. And thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.